Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. On today's episode, we are going to take a look at six crucial years in modern Tibetan history that culminated in the Tibetan National Uprising of 1959 and the subsequent total Chinese occupation of Tibet. Our guest today is Zhonglin Li, an independent scholar and the author of this new book, When the Iron Bird Flies, China's Secret War in Tibet, which recently came out in English and features a foreword from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. When the Iron Bird Flies is Zhonglin's second book about Tibet. And in this conversation, we'll discuss her writing and research, the end of Tibet's freedom, and the differences she discovered in the Tibetan and Chinese versions of history that led her as a native of China to do her own research. But before Zhang Lin comes on screen, I'd like to invite the interim president of the International Campaign for Tibet, Buchung Sering, to come on to provide some context and some background for what we're about to hear. Buchung La, please take it away. Thank you, Ashwin. A privilege for me to be giving some sort of uh, introductory context to what uh, Zhang Lin will be speaking. So uh, if we look at modern Tibetan history, it's generally assumed that March 10, 1959 was the watershed and thereafter Tibet was completely occupied. But from this book, which I haven't, I should admit that I haven't finished reading, plus Zhang Lin's first book, Tibetan Agony, we get a different perspective of modern Tibetan history, which adds value to researchers who are looking at the Tibetan issue. There are three main points that we uh, should keep in mind as we listen to Jungling. First is what led to the Tibetan struggle? Was it just some aristocrats or not wanting Chinese uh, rule in Tibet? Was it just a religious community not wanting Chinese rule in Tibet? Or was it something else? In this uh, context, Jungling provides an overview of how uh, the Tibetan uh, struggle began as uh, she laid out in the book in the, from the mid-50s and went around even beyond 1959. So that has to be taken into context first. Secondly, the scope of the Tibetan struggle. According to the Chinese uh, uh, point of view, they say that Tibetan, they came to liberate Tibet because it was under foreign imperialism. And also that Tibet was under the three lords, among whom is uh, the, monast the monastic community and the aristocrats. So again, from uh, this perspective, was it just that, or was the was there resentment from uh, the Tibetan masses? That is again one thing that we need to bear in mind. Along with that is the fact that when we talk about Tibet, there is an assumption that the struggle was only in what is called the. Uh, Tibetan government that was under uh, the Dalai Lamas. Again, in this book uh, and in the six years that Zhang Lin profiles, we see how the uh, struggle goes beyond the borders of the present-day Tibet Autonomous Region. And there is much emphasis on what happened in those Tibetan areas in Kamenando in the mid-50s that resulted in uh, the Tibetan uprising and uh, thereafter. Thirdly, March 1959, when after the Chinese authorities suppressed, violently suppressed the Tibetan uprising, it's assumed that the Chinese authorities occupied Tibet. There were uh, some sort of uh, reminders of the struggle efforts made by Tibetans. But again, a new perspective is given when Zhang Lin shows us that there was a systematic campaign that the Chinese authorities launched that began in some around like 1956 and went around wasn't completed around uh, until around 1962 or so. So if you look at it uh, from this perspective and then listen to Zhang Lin, I think we'll have the opportunity to reinterpret our understanding of modern Tibetan history from a new approach. So I hope uh, uh, we can all bear that in mind as we listen to Zhang Lin. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, uh, Buchanla. Uh, very, very valuable to hear that information about this period in Tibetan history. And uh, that really helps set the stage perfectly for our main speaker. So thank you very much for that introduction. Um, as I mentioned at the start of today's program, our speaker for this episode of today's, uh, uh, this episode of Tibet Talks is um, an, in, an author and an independent scholar who has expertise in Tibetan history and the Tibetan diaspora. She has written numerous books, including a previous book on Tibet called Tibetan Agony, Lhasa 1959, which came out in English in 2016. Her new book, When the Iron Bird Flies, came out earlier this year in English from the Stanford University Press. We will share the link to purchase When the Iron Bird Flies in the comment section of our Facebook Live post, so please take a look there. But for now, Please join me in welcoming our guest for today's episode of Tibet Talks. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Zhonglin Li. Zhonglin, thanks for being here and welcome back to Tibet Talks. You want to take this opportunity to thank many people, but just seem very brief. This book, when, uh, both of my books, um, during the research and writing, I have the good luck to receive many, many people's help, uh, especially Tibetans inside and outside China, and even some Chinese uh, cutters who um, have to hide their names and I still cannot mention their names. Anyway, this is a painful history to research and write about, but I think someone has to do it. Um, let me just briefly introduce the, the framework, um, how I come to, come to uh, research and write about this part of history. Um, when I was in China, I was taught like everyone else, uh, what happened in Tibet was a vicious um, rebellion against the central government, and which, is, um, which was, um, Launched by Tibetan the rich, uh, rich and uh, backward governments, helped by CIA and American imperialists, and so on. Um, I went to the first time I went to I went to India in Darsana was 2007, and that was the time I met many Tibetan uh, refugees and realized the story is totally different. So as I was trained as a historian, I really wanted to find out what was the real story. That's, I, that's the time when I started uh, specific research on this history. And the discovery I had was, of course, shocked me deeply. And I can say it even shook me deeply. So I spent uh, some years writing, researching, interview, field work in, in in India and altogether went to India nine times and many and interviewed hundreds of Tibetan refugees to, re, to record their story, their memory, and compare those, their stories with the uh, Chinese language sources I was able to find, uh, mostly Hong Kong, Taiwan, and uh, a lot of Chinese publications to verify uh, the historical events described by you know, different angles and different people. Basically, the book, um, When Iron Birds Flies, that covers six years of a Chinese government's bloody, brutal suppression of Tibetan uprising. And the Tibetan agony that was about one month uh, events happened directly in Lhasa alone that leads uh, to Dalai Lama's escape. So in other words, the Chinese uh, suppression of Tibet lasted for six years. And um, the Lhasa, the event in Lhasa lasted uh, around one month. So, so we need to see what happened before 
1959 and what happened after 1959, and that was covered in this new book. And uh, the new book contains lots of details of uh, Chinese army, the military actions took place in entire Tibet, not only Lhasa, not only today's uh, uh, Tibet autonomous region. It's more, my emphasis actually is more on uh, Khan and Andor, especially Andor, which I consider much less known region and had a, uh, a lot of bloody suppression and it's and uh, all of these details are covered in this book in this book now let me just briefly mention some new findings um, when I say new meaning something I didn't know before and probably many other people don't know before uh, first of all what happened in Tibet in these six years, I consider is a war. It's not just like a, um, policemen suppress some local up, up, uh, uprising. It's a military, uh, a considerable scale of a military uh, action in that place, in that entire Tibetan regions. Uh, the army involvement is uh, specific army units are all covered in this book. And um, what shocked me was airport, uh, air force, your Chinese air force involvement. Can we see this map? The air force map. I have yeah. This is the Chinese original. Uh, it's in Chinese, and we can see those. Uh, the white circles were the um, all those, this is only covered, this map only covered central Tibet area. Actually, actually, this, this uh, central Tibet area, Air Force involvement was for three years, from 1959 uh, to 1962. But in Andor area, especially in Qinghai, it started in 1958. So altogether, the Air Force involvement in t suppressing Tibetan uprising lasted four years. And in this area, in this map alone, you can see the original, uh, the map has this bow tie shape. And those three of them, uh, those, those indicating in the Chinese original, it says it's army uh, air Force bombing and the uh, air patrol region, and you see the center one, the big, the big white dot. That's Lhasa, which means in the Battle of Lhasa in nineteen in March nineteen fifty nine, Chinese Air Force bombed that region, and there is also in the Battle of Lhasa and the Battle of Battle of uh, Metika. Air, the involved Air Force. This is only in uh, Central Tibet, and more details in the book. And we can take a look of quick look of the uh, of the map in English, which I translated into, into English. Um, in this simplified map, I took out those two big green arrows. Those arrows indicating the uh, uh, ground uh, force entering Tibet in 1959. And, uh, and, and you can see I didn't, I didn't add, I didn't add this um, area because it was written in the text. But you can see those uh, Air Force involvement and where, where the headquarters and uh, how many uh, military airports involved in this, in, in the Tibetan, uh, suppressing Tibetan uh, uprising. And another thing I want to emphasize is what happened in Andor. And uh, Andor covers, uh, Andor is now basically is, is divided, has been divided into several provinces, uh, mostly in Qinghai. Yeah, this is the Chinese original of the suppressing Qinghai rebellion, Tibetan uprising in Qinghai in 1958. 
this is the major all this dark uh little uh like a oval shape there's a dark area where the major battles and all the arrows were chinese army movements and uh, little all those boxes tells you time and uh, specific army specific army involvement and the battle battle raging and how many Tibetans were quote the Chinese word annihilated. And this is this only happened in 1958. And in Qinghai in this in Qinghai area alone, the battles, the war lasted for three years. It ended in uh, in July 1962. So we have, we also have, I also have the map from uh, 1950, uh, 1959 and 1960. And this is the, this is the one I adapted, uh, translated into English and simplify that and it was in the book and uh, kept major information and the dates omitted uh, the specific army units, but it was written in the book. From there, you can see, from this map, you can get an idea uh, how how brutal the events, the war happened in took place in in Qinghai region, and the population, Tibetan population loss in this region is very stunning. So those are some of the findings I got from from the research, uh, mostly from the Chinese, Chinese uh, uh, documents and the Chinese publications, and especially military history, publications in mil about military history. And uh, all, those, all those battles, and the battles I, uh, I described in the chapters were verified from a Tibetan memory. So we can, we can, we know what happened in in the documents, in the air, and also we knew what happened on, in, on the ground, but how individual Tibetans and the tribes and the individuals and the families, what they went through. And we are talking about those who successfully escaped in India and survived all the hardships and I was able to interview. And many of them died uh, during the battles, there were no records. And all this happened in very remote area. So there's no publication, international publication. Nothing happened in, uh, nothing published inside China uh, during the time. People still don't know. In China, a few in Chinese know about it. And uh, um, even Tibetan cadres I interviewed um, about 10 years ago when the last time I was able to uh, go to China. They only knew what happened in their own region. They didn't know anything. They didn't know the general picture. So what I can say, what's my conclusion about all this research? First of all, all this tells you is um, there's no such a thing of peaceful liberation of Tibet. Tibet was not a peaceful liberation. Tibet was a very brutal military conquest. And um, it was under military control uh, from 1961 when uh, PRA first entered Tibet um, until uh, Basically, 1965, when the so-called Tibet Autonomous Region formally established. Before that, it's basically is a military. It was like a military government. Local government is mostly a military government, because for years um, the military and the administration. They didn't really, there's no difference. The same people, and they just use this different name. So 
I, I wrote in my book, Tibet wasn't peacefully liberated. It was a military. It was, it was, it was conquered through a very bloody war. And I also wrote about, did some research about um, America's help with, uh, during the time. That was one of the myths Chinese government still talk about to this day. There's a detailed analysis and statistics too about what, what help Tibetans got from America. At the same time, exactly the same years, uh, what help the Vietnamese got from Chinese government. And there's, a, there's a even uh, very detailed statistics about uh, how, how many uh, weapons uh, CIA provided to, Tibet, to Tibetans and how many, uh, how many weapons uh, Chinese, Chinese government provided to Vietnamese. And from there, you can see there's nothing comparable. And what Tibetans um, uh, fighting is really mostly on this, basically it's on their own. They had no help from, no, uh, from anywhere. And uh, so what, what, we, what we see from, uh, what we learned from this um, is basically, I think that it's an important part of the history. We need to know the facts from the, uh, from the, uh, from the myths. And we also have to understand about this part of our history in order to understand um, all of the events in the recent years, why Tibetans still fighting, uh, why uh, resisting the Chinese rule, why Tibetans uh, to this day was still, you know, for the past, past uh, some years, Tibetans, Tibetan self-immolation is a another strong way of resisting Chinese rule, but why? And what happened all these years? And how, how all this started? And um, I think this is important for Tibetan, part of the Tibetan history, for the Tibetan younger generation to know, for the Tibetans to pass down, and um, as a historian, I feel like this is something I had to do, and um, I'm grateful that I had so much help and being and was able to get this done. And uh, I think all this part of history is also important for the Chinese now, and not only my generation, for the future generation of Chinese now. As historian said. The Ch Chinese and Tibetans were neighbors. Uh, eventually, one day, someday, I hope, uh, not too far away, we will sit down and talk, and we will figure out what we what what we should do to heal the historical wounds and to see um, to create a future acceptable 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 for the Tibetans. And uh, everything has to be against this background, and for and uh, to learn the historical facts. I don't know what else we should I should talk about, but basically this is a, a quick review, quick description of what about the book, and there's so much detail in it, and I cannot cover here, and. Um, I think if you get a chance to read it, you probably will learn something which you probably don't know it, uh, before. And uh, this part of the history also important, also is also important for the region, regional security. And uh, we need to remember another thing is that in this Chinese map, Air Force map, the Air Force 
the the Air Force involvement um, lasted for three years until July '62, <coughs> and we remember six months later there was a clash between Chinese uh, army and the Indian army on the border. No problem. Thank you. Thank you so much for that presentation, Zhonglin. That was uh, incredibly powerful. Um, it was really rewarding to hear about uh, your discoveries and your research. We want to thank you for all of the work that you put in to uh, uncover the real story of what happened during these years and to share this with your with your readers. And um, we uh, will get to some audience questions in just a little bit, but I would like to uh, remind uh, everybody who is watching this live, if you do have a question for Zhonglin, please post it in the comment section of our Facebook Live video, or you can email the questions to comments at savetibet.org, and we'll get to those in just a few minutes. But thank you again, Zhonglin. Um, I have a few questions for you here. Um, so you meant so when iron when the iron bird flies uh was released in chinese i think a few years ago and uh you talked a little bit about your own personal story of how you grew up and what you learned and you talked a little bit about the people that you've worked with and the differences in in history that uh chinese people learn compared to tibetans and uh, people in other parts of the world I'm curious, when this book did come out in Chinese, what sort of, what kind of reception did it get? And generally speaking, when you do this type of research and you uncover all of these hard truths about what the Chinese army did in Tibet, what kind of response do you get from Chinese readers? Uh, depends on where. In, in Hong Kong, Taiwan was very much a shock, and especially in Taiwan. And uh, in China, uh, you know, it quickly went into China, very fast. And the uh, Chinese government tried to suppress it. I remember somebody put online in one of the, like four or five months after publication, the Chinese publication, in one of the uh, Chinese uh, uh, website, like quite well-known website, website they shared books, you can put it on, like Z library similar to that. Someone put it on. Uh, so they just like uh, scanned it and put it on. In less than one week, it hit like nearly 500 downloads in less than one week. And then it was taken down. It was banned. And it was quickly, it was basically, it's a, it's a, it was banned as soon as it was published. But it somehow, it made its way into China. People, even today, even now, after 10 years of its publication, almost 10 years now, it's published uh, uh, 2012. Sometimes uh, people still will ask me, email me, say, I want, your, I, want this, I want to read this book. And so people really want to know. They really want to know. People have, inside China, there are many people kind of, especially the younger generation, they started to doubt the Chinese version, government version of history. So they kind of like want to uh, listen to uh, read different versions, not only for this, for Tibetan history, but others, uh, other major events too. So Tibet, because it's always an issue. And so, it, it, you know, the secret, it's been secretly circulating inside China. Yes, we're glad to hear that uh, many people have uh, been able to, to get access to the book. You mentioned at the end what His Holiness has said about Tibetans and Chinese being neighbors for so long, and hopefully someday that can happen again, and they can live together side by side peacefully. Looking back on this history and everything that you've discovered in the process of writing this book and all of your research on Tibetan history, what do you think, what is your view on, on the future of the Tibetan issue and what might be the best way to, to, to actually solve this decades-long uh, crisis that's been happening on the Tibetan plateau? Of course, I would uh, respect the Tibetan people's uh, wish, whatever they, whatever they want. But from the Chinese side, I would think about whatever you need to, you, when we start, where we start is we need to start from here, the real history. You need to admit 
the atrocity happened in Tibet. And you need to understand the Tibetan's agony. And the Tibetan people's the wound is carried several generations. And because I, I, it's very hard for me even now to think about some of my interviews. During the interviews, it, it took a lot of strength for me to record all this uh, with my camera, video camera, and everything. And uh, once this, uh, uh, one of my interviews, um, the old man is 95 years old, and he was literally dying. He could hardly talk. And then when he heard there's a Chinese writer here want to hear Tibetan story, he, he said, I want to talk. And uh, I, I just couldn't, you know, I don't know how to describe that feeling. And about this, and that's giving me such a strong motivation, want to bring this um, to the Chinese. We have been talking for many years, but we 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 have been suppressed by this, by that, and uh, uh, imperialists. We are victims of imperialisms. Americans, uh, Japanese, British, so on and so forth. But remember, we did the same thing, maybe even worse, to other people. And it you it takes courage to understand it. Try to first try to seek the truth, then admit it and then start from here. From the historian point, uh, historian's point of view, I would say we start from here. And then without this common ground, we won't be able to go anywhere. Thank you, Shangan, that, that's very powerful. And I, I completely agree with you. It takes a lot of courage for, for all of us, no matter who we are, to accept history and to understand what our own ancestors have done. So that's incredibly powerful. You said that uh, the, the, there was no peaceful liberation of Tibet. There's no such thing as that. It was a brutal military conquest. If there's one message or one big lesson that you would like people to take away from this book, would that be it? Or what is the, what's the main message that you hope readers will take from reading When the Iron Bird Flies? That's what I think. That's, it really shattered the myth of a peaceful liberation of Tibet. Uh, I, I have a statistics, uh, I found, uh, Tibetan, I wrote about the Tibetan population loss and, uh, uh, which I've, uh, I actually found a Chinese military, secret military document. Um, it mentioned the six years of Tibetan, uh, they call, they, they even Tibet, even the Chinese themselves call this war. They, they literally use the word war. Inside of themselves, but, but in the secret documents. But outside, they use the word suppression, uh, suppressing Tibetan, uh, Rebellion, but in inside of the in, internal documents, even among the, the military um, documents, they use the term war. And uh, they, it's about, um, I calculated about nearly 17% of Tibetan population at that time directly involved in the battlefield, meaning they were, most of them were escaping tribes. They tried to escape, uh, and then they were rounded up uh, by cavalry or infantry and bombed from air by air force and so on. So they, when, when I'm saying, when I'm talking about direct involvement, it's not a Tibetan army, uh, two army fighting each other. It's the Tibetan civilians, Tibetan nomads, monks, uh, Merchants, just like ordinary people, they were the ones being killed, shot, um, or bombed, and that this this part of the population directly involved in the battlefield, being rounded up and killed and bombed and as a military target. In one word, it's about seventeen percent of Tibetan population of that time. And this doesn't, that doesn't, this population, this statistic doesn't including people died later, uh, people died in jail, people died in 
uh, farming, yes, the, uh, the great farming did take place in Tibet too. This, uh, so far, I haven't been able to research about it. And um, I hope Tibetans in the future will do, do some re research on this. But so this, this population loss is tremendous. And that's not peaceful at all. Yes, uh, thank, thank you, Jeanlin. I have um, one final question here before we turn to the audience, and it's actually similar to, to it uh, refers to something that you mentioned. Tibetans who were killed by the Chinese army, many of them, it was not a professional army, they were not real soldiers. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier in this week. Um, with what's happening in the Ukraine now, with Russia's invasion, uh, some people have drawn parallels between that situation and what happened in Tibet during the period of time discussed in your book. Uh, of course, there are many conflicts taking place all around the world right now, uh, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine is getting a lot of attention. Um, but I know that you mentioned that you really don't see that strong of a link between these two uh, two issues and that um, the situation in Ukraine is not the same as what happened in Tibet, and Tibetans really didn't have the ability to defend themselves in the same way, and certainly didn't get the level of international attention. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that? In a way, you can say um, there's one similarity. We can say that um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a, very much is a um, invasion, military invasion of uh, um, a country. And in a way, um, Chinese uh, conquest of Tibet is also Tibet, um, similar because Tibet is a de facto independent country and being invaded by a bigger and a more powerful neighbor. In, in, the, in, in terms of this, this link, yeah, there's some similarity. But in the actual fighting the battle itself, there's a, major, a few major differences. Um, Tibetan in Russia and Ukraine, there are still four more army fighting each other. Um, in Tibet, there's no Tibetan formal army. We all know that there's a very small Tibetan army. Uh, it's not really a modern army and in, in many senses. And that's only in central Tibet. And this army as a whole didn't involve in this six years of conflict. Some Tibetan army soldiers and officers, they, they deserted. They join the rebellion. That's a different issue, but they are not as an army involved in it. And the Tibetan government didn't uh, support Chusiganju um, uh, and didn't provide them army. And Chusiganju is, of course, is a militia. It's not a formal army. And uh, let's note, Tibet didn't have any international support, not even from India. And uh, there's no publicity at all. What happened inside Tibet during the time and after that is hardly known to the outside world. Even you know, even to this day, many people, even many, even many historians didn't even know after Dalai Lama's escape, the war still lasted for another three years. Actually, what happened in central Tibet? It started from April 1950, uh, 1959, that's exactly after, one month after Tibet um, Dalai Lama's escape. And in the three years, I calculated uh, 12 major military uh, campaigns there in Tibet, uh, in central Tibet alone. And it was all written in the book. So in this, in this case, we think, um, I would really hesitate to make this comparison. And uh, Tibetan, uh, Tibetans were, you know, the, the annihilated Tibetans were they're not, many of them not even militia. Many of them are unarmed. Thank, thank you, Zhanglin. Um, let's turn now to some questions from our audience. So first of all, we have a question from Sonam Tapgil, who's from Ithaca, New York. 
And he asks, where did you learn the phrase and the proverb, when the iron bird flies? <laughs> um, actually, in one of my research, uh, research trips, um, I, you know, let's say, put this way, I didn't study, uh, uh, learn, uh, research Tibetan, this part of history from, uh, studying history. You know, as a historian, first of all, you need to know the cultural background. As before I started writing and researching about history, I spent several years studying uh, everything about Tibet. You know, I I start from zero. I know nothing. I have to admit, I didn't know anything. I'm still not an expert. But I need to know the backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, in order to know that. So I came across this uh, uh, this uh, prediction. And uh, it somehow hit me, you know, there's so many, so much in it. It's, it tells you some, you know, the iron bird, the image of the iron bird and the horses uh, on wheels. That is what exactly what happened uh, in, in Tibet at that time. And the word also, iron bird was also the phrase Tibetans at that time used to describe airplane. They saw the airplane. They didn't know what that that it was. You know, many people in, in the nomads, especially the nomads in in 19, uh, 1958, and the monks in 1956 in in Khan area. That was the first military uh, air force involvement in bombing uh, the monasteries. When people saw that, they don't know how to describe the thing they saw. They call it the dying bird. And uh, similarly, we have a question from Ganze Sering. Uh, he wanted to know, I think you've sort of answered this, but he wanted to know if the choice to use that as a title, was that your choice? Was that the publisher's choice? Uh, I guess it was your choice you always wanted to, to call the book that. Yeah, actually, uh, when I was writing this book, I had the trouble finding the uh, uh, choice. And um, I think I want something really describe the situation, have some mystery in it, and uh, what happened happened there, and this reflect some kind of Tibetan culture and a Tibetan perspective. And uh, what Tibetan, we all know, uh, airplane, bombers, uh, a two, two, four, you know, all this kind of phrase. But Tibetan, you think about if you look from through the eyes of the Tibetans in 1956, Tibetan the monk in 1956 and um, Ando nomad from like in 1958, this is what they see. They saw their understanding. So I use this uh, actually when I use this uh, title. My publisher in Taiwan, in Chinese, they, they didn't like it. They wanted me to change it. They wanted me something more politically related. I said, no, this is from a Tibetan's perspective. You, what I want to see, this is, this, I think I can't think of anything better than that. I want a Tibetan's, from a Tibetan's perspective, based on Tibetan cultural heritage. And so I insisted on this one in Chinese. So when this book, English, just uh, when we discuss about this, this book was accepted by four um, published universities, including Columbia University and uh, Oxford. We, um, we chose uh, this one. My first request is, I'm not going to change the title. Don't ask me this. And I have my conditions when, they, when we discuss, uh, negotiate about it. I was like, one thing is I, I don't want it to change the title. I want it. I don't want to take out the prophecy um, because this is Tibetan cultural heritage and from Tibetan perspective. And I also don't want to make it a completely academic book. I want it to be accessible to a general public. That's what. That's how it came. It's a it's a wonderful title, and um, we have a, another question here that came in by email, actually, and this is from Loretta Dipboy, and uh, she asks, 
do you have any suggestions about specific actions that other countries should take now to help Tibet? I don't know if that's something you can answer, but. Yeah, unfortunately, Tibet is all, people don't, and people outside Asia don't quite understand, understand the, uh, the important, um, geographic position of Tibet. As an Indian, you know quite well. I've been to Ladakh, and I can, I went to, you know, the river, upsource of the river. And, uh, in, and the Tibet, geographic position in Tibet is, is, is almost vital in, in Asia, both for Eastern Asia and, uh, Southern Asia, because Tibet is the, what do we call, the water tower, the Asia's water tower, the four major uh, rivers, one goes to uh, Burma, right, and Thailand, the one goes to India, one, two go to China, all started from Tibet. And, uh, and uh, for, for Asians, Tibet, uh, Tibet is a real, it's, it's something like really crucial for regional peace. But the, unfortunately, the Europeans, Americans, they don't live there. <laughs> they don't quite understand this. Like, uh, if we don't handle the situation well, a regional war may break out. For instance, China has been building dams in the river. I don't know. I, you, maybe you can pronounce the word in 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 English. I really don't know how to pronounce the word. You know, China be building a dams in the river that flow into China. Right? That was I think that was the upper reach of uh, Ganges. Okay. Right. 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 Yeah, that river, that, and in, I think one of the maps uh, indicated that river. But anyway, and which means China can easily control water flow into India. And they can control water flow to other parts of Asia. And so this could be a source of war, regional war. And I think the other people, the U.S really should understand uh, like the Indians concern about Tibet and so hopefully we'll, this will change in the future I don't know but I, we can only hope I, I think that's a, a very important point that more people do need to understand Tibet as a security issue as well um, it's often certainly a human rights issue an environmental issue many other things but it is a world security global security issue as well that uh, countries need to recognize absolutely because a lot of concern about Tibet is cultural issue environment but this is definitely is a re at least a regional concern uh, security issue. Yes, absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for this. We're getting close to the end of the program here, but I do want to ask uh, one final question before we sign off. Um, so this is your second book about Tibet. Mm -hmm. Do you think you have plans, uh, if you can look ahead a little bit, do you think you have plans to, to continue your writing on Tibet? I'm still doing the research. There's one project I was trying to do, but it's like so humongous, I'm kind of like dragging. <laughs> and it's a uh, the destruction, we're talking about those two books about, uh, talking about destruction of Tibet, uh, political system and, uh, Tibetan society as a whole. And another issue is the, uh, total destruction of Tibetan culture, which really we can, I, I can confidently say, I would say that is a culture genocide, which is the total destruction of Tibetan monastery. You know, the, uh, the traditional, in, in traditional Tibet, all the knowledge, all kinds of knowledge was kept in monasteries, but the monasteries were destroyed, uh, was destroyed. The monastic system was de destroyed during these six years too. I mentioned a little bit, you know, but I was trying to work on that. That required me to list actually individual monasteries, all 4,000, more than 4,000 of them. I've been doing this from the Chinese sources, 
and but it's very slow, and I have to be translated into English, and that's another issue. Hopefully, in my in my lifetime, I will be able to finish this project. We would certainly be grateful to see that. It is uh, something that, unfortunately, we're seeing a recurrence of today, where once again the Chinese government yeah. is yeah breaking that system that you said is the, the bedrock of uh, of the religion. And this is also important part of the historical facts which need to be recorded because many people, the Chinese government try to cover up this part and they always say, and many even younger generation Tibetans understand this destruction of Tibetan monasteries was during the Cultural Revolution, but that's not true, totally not true, uh, mostly in 1958 and uh, yeah, mostly in 1958. In, especially in Qinghai, that we have, I already have a lot of statistics. Right. But you, and you, you know, historical research, you need to have specific facts and objective facts. It's a lot of work. Once again, the book is called When the Iron Bird Flies, and it is available now from Stanford University Press. And Zhang Lin, it is an absolutely valuable and a very vital contribution to our understanding of Tibetan history and to what's happening there today. And we want to thank you again so much, not only for being here on Tibet Talks today, but for all of the incredible uh, work. And uh, I'm sure it uh, is no small feat to, just to put this together. And uh, and so we thank you so much for, for all of these uh, incredible contributions you made, not only to our understanding of Tibetan history, but also to uh, Tibetan Chinese relations. So thank you so much. It's really great to uh, to have you on here again. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, I do hope people will take some time to read it. It's not a pleasant reading, of course, and um, and I I also hope this is uh, this is a history and uh, part of the story we need to pass down to the future generation, and that's why. Um, also, I just mentioned also it's a Tibetan sure. translation too. Uh, oh, wonderful! Yes. As for those who cannot read English or Chinese, you can read and you can read in Tibetan. <laughs> it's yeah, published absolutely. last year, December last year in, in India. Oh, wonderful, yes. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, thank you to all of you who are watching and listening from home. We truly appreciate your support. We will be back next month with another episode of Tibet Talks. Until then, as we always say, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.